Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of AUSU Open Mic. We got a real cool guest with us today, and uh, uh, we're going to be spending some time talking AU and specifically from the office of the AU Registrar. We've got Richard McLeod with us, and uh, Richard, you are our AU Registrar. Uh, maybe throw us a little introduction, and uh, how long have you been at AU? Sure, yeah, thanks so much, and I really appreciate um, you guys inviting me in. The only other kind of broadcast I've done for the university relate to academic integrity, and uh, that's, I guess, not the, the tact for uh, today because that's more of a kind of education and punitive type piece. So I've been at Athabasca University for about 11 years now, and I've been the university registrar for, I think, about five of those years, and, and I've really enjoyed... Um, working with university and with students, um, our special kinds of students, um, and um, really my focus is on student success. Nice. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize you were around for so long. Um, maybe describe a little bit the path that brought you to AU and how eventually you ended up in your role as the AU registrar. Sure. Yeah, so I've been doing this stuff for... Um, I don't want to tell you how long, but it's been over 25 <laughs> years. Uh, and I've worked at three uh, very unique types of universities. I've worked at Mount Allison University, which okay. is a smaller residential university uh, in New Brunswick. That's where I received my first degree. And then I worked there and I was an associate registrar there and worked there for a number of years. Okay. Uh, then, I, then I went on to Simon Fraser University, which uh, many uh, of your listeners and you probably know is um, in Vancouver, and I specifically worked at the downtown campus for a number of years uh, until I moved up to the main campus to take on additional duties, other duties. So really enjoyed dealing with more of an adult learner on that campus. Uh, we projected a lot of non-credit courses from there, um, language courses, um, professional development type courses, opera courses. We ran a fairly big program for seniors at that point. Oh, wow. in time as well, but still had a big complement of undergraduate and graduate students. Um, we ran a number of graduate programs out of the downtown campus, including our executive MBA program um, and uh, ran some other specialized programs that you do when you're in kind of the heart of uh, cultural heart of the city. Yeah, so that, yeah. was, that was fantastic. And then I guess 10 or 11 years ago, I decided to come to Athabasca University, mostly made those choices um, for personal reasons, I wanted to be able to um, own a house, which wasn't really um, on the trajectory for me in the lower mainland of uh, <laughs> Vancouver. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so now I, you know, live um, next to a beautiful uh, lake um, and I can fish almost every day if I want to. And, you know, the deer and the moose come in and out of my yard and I have three um, small children, and I just really en enjoy kind of the, the lifestyle that living in a smaller town, but with, you know, an important university nearby kind of uh, brings. So, well, yeah. and, and considering that you've just described a career path that has literally seen you travel across the entire country and land in uh, downtown Athabasca. And so, I mean, you're in a very unique, quaint part of the world in Athabasca, and people don't realize it, but uh, it's a beautiful part of the country up there. It really is. So the history here um, is not really well known, but it is part, uh, if you look at Athabasca on a map and you follow the Athabasca River from the headwaters in the Rockies, um, you'll see that, you know, it goes from Athabasca Falls in the Rockies up to, what we call Lake Athabasca, which is, I think, where some of the more recent, if you watch Alone, if you're a fan of watching Alone, which is kind of the survival show, yeah, that's I am, where the I Athabasca, that. yeah, that's where the Athabasca River ends up. And we are kind of at the big V, so the river, uh, it's kind of a big, uh, I was going to say crook or crick, a bend in the river, and it was kind of the launching place for bringing goods uh, further north. Um, and getting goods uh, staged for, you know, the gold rush, the fur, you know, everything else that you can imagine the Hudson's Bay Company and, yeah, and yeah. other people did to try to open up the country um, and just the real sweat and labor that it took to, to do that. And the people in this area 
still have that attitude and it's it is the Alberta kind of get her done type attitude and it is it's fantastic because people you know when you talk when you talk about ideas or new things a lot of people will focus on well we can't do this because and really that's not the attitude in this town at all it's you know we can get this done because we're going to get it done by working together and we're just going to keep talking about it until other people give up and uh, it's really nice and that is pervasive in the workforce at the university as well I mean, I look at the multiplex. If you've ever been up to the multiplex, I know you have been. Yeah, it's yeah. where we run our we run our convocations. That multiplex is punching way above its weight from a service perspective, based on the population and catchment area locally. And that's because if you're ever in the multiplex and you see the new swimming pool that's been added recently, uh, the local uh, uh, businesses and individuals have contributed to it to to get it done so it's it's fantastic well and I, I guess that it's also very fitting that au has their campus there i mean that little town speaking of um having that kind of punch behind it um man that university up there is beautiful too it is so people don't really realize how idyllic it is so we have this huge um natural area that the university is right next to and yeah. It's right now people, as we speak, are cross-country skiing on it. They groom the trails. Uh, people jog on it. Um, when we have students up here for uh, some of our biology courses, they go on some of their field trips through there as well. So, nice. Yeah, and so we see our students showing up with rubber boots, and you know, uh, and they'll go out in the field, and they'll be taking their collections and doing samples and stuff. So it is a unique type of university. I mean, the only negative part is that i do miss having the direct interaction with students on a regular basis yeah i, would so I agree can't with that. just yeah i can't just go to the coffee store coffee shop and just have some some random interactions with other uh university people and students and everybody else at a frequency that really helps kind of give me the energy on a day-to-day basis so i have to to seek out those opportunities and this okay. is a good one for that yeah yeah absolutely well Let's get into this a little bit, Richard, and I know you've got a large portfolio as the AU Registrar, and uh, as crazy as this question might be, can you describe your role for us? Sure. Um, So the role of the University Registrar generally is kind of transformed over the last probably 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. At one point, it was more of a record-keeping role to make sure that all of the university records were secure when it came to um, student transcripts uh, and, you know, parchments and registration data, all that kind of stuff. But now it's really transformed. So because uh, most universities to be successful operate at scale and at the best university, we're the, the poster child for operating at scale. My portfolio would be kind of five different areas. So we would have a registration unit, which handles uh, university uh, course registrations, uh, incoming and outgoing transcripts, general miscellaneous requests that students make, you know, you need your form authorized so you can get external funding, you need a proof of enrollment, Um, you missed a deadline, you have to appeal something, all those type of things. So that, you know, one of our areas, we have our financial aid area, which also does scholarships and bursaries. So we have about five to 6,000 students annually who um, present as a student on financial aid, which is fantastic. Okay. And we have a group of uh, dedicated employees that work tirelessly to make sure that we can get these students processed and funded and um, on their way. And the scholarships and bursaries piece, which would be mostly um, uh, related to either uh, students that have demonstrated need or based on a competitive uh, um, aspect like GPA or in a certain program, we have a fairly modest um endowment program there for students so there's that piece uh we also have a fairly large transfer credit and evaluation unit so um 60 of our undergraduate students who are coming in for a program identify as having prior learning yeah for so sure. es- essentially we are like the credentialer of last resort so you know if you might have had three or four fits and starts at education and other places Maybe it was in province, maybe it was out of province, maybe it was international. Um, We have a very specialized team of individuals who are using uh, databases 
to go through and validate what sort of transfer credit we can give you and hopefully minimize the amount of effort and time it will take you to complete a degree uh, with Athabasca University. And then um, I guess the examinations unit. So we um, obviously have, as university, we do check-ins with students so they can we can measure their learning. That's usually done with midterms and final exams, but not in every case. And we have about 40,000 examinations annually. And wow. these, uh, yeah, so these exams go all over the world. And we have a real push on now, which I can talk about later, to make more of our exams digital. So, um, you know, at one point in time, we were a correspondence university, right? It sounds like a dirty word now, but that, you know, that was the best technology at the time. And, you know, it, it transformed to a bit of a telelearning thing. And now we're using you know, the internet backbone to be able to deliver stuff right to people's um, desktops or tablets all over the world. Your portfolio is huge. Like, there's a lot going on there. And uh, I think we've also recognized that students across this country are, I mean, every single one of them will touch your department in some way or form uh, throughout their academic career. Just a quick question. How many staff do you have working within the office of the registrar? Yeah, so we have uh, 52.6, so just just around 53 staff members, um, and the vast majority of our staff members have um, have been here for a long, long time. So I bet, I bet they're very they're very specialized, and we're kind of getting a new crew coming in as some of our more seasoned employees begin to retire or move on to other opportunities. So yeah, we have we have a good mix. Yeah, it's the new. The new generation of Athabasca is going to be uh, coming to uh, uh, work for you pretty soon here. Yeah, there's a lot more um, smartphones on the desk than there were five or ten years ago, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, and the the last thing we do, I would say it's the last thing we do because it's it's not the right way to characterize it, but we would um, make sure that when you think you're ready to graduate, we would um, do the degree audit, so we would verify that your courses taken, transfer courses, meet what the university guidelines are. And if they do, we would give you the, the big thumbs up and then put your name forward for uh, general faculty council approval. And then from there, we would actually produce the parchment, record your credential, all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a perfect segue because I think uh, as in the life of uh, the life cycle of a student, um, let's just start at admissions and work our way to graduation, if that works for you. Sure, And yeah. um, considering AU's unique rolling monthly enrollment, um, what advice would you provide to pr- prospective students as they are applying to a program at AU? Right, yeah. So essentially, as an open university, almost every program you can apply at any time, right? Yeah, so- yeah. We, we have some more specialized programs or professional programs like some of our nursing, um, architecture, some of our business programs. Um, you might have to demonstrate different types of um, entry criteria. But otherwise, you know, the advice um, isn't a technical one. It's you have to know when you're ready to do something. Um, and we have a lot of false starts at the university because there are no barriers to entry. Right. So a false, a false start would be a student who applies and then um, is accepted but doesn't take their first course, for example. So the best advice um, that I could give somebody is to decide the reason they would want to get a program at the university. Um, and if that is something that they are passionate about or if that is something that is going to they think is going to give them upwards mobility the only thing that can stand in their way of completion um, is life just like everything else so make sure you understand what the commitment's going to be make sure you have support from your family and friends make sure you budget enough time and this is a big one don't procrastinate right yeah, yeah, and especially when the doors are open. I mean, AU being an open uh, online distance university, I mean, uh, maybe that maybe that applies to a few people where they tend to put it off a little bit just because it's so easy to get in each month. But that's uh, fantastic advice. Many AU students are potentially not aware of AU's diverse student body, and I know a lot of um, a lot of students always speak to this feeling of isolation, like they feel that they're the only ones in their area. 
Um, speaking of demographics, and this is potentially going to be off the top of your head, so we, we certainly didn't give you a lot of time to prep for this, but what is AUSU's uh, current headcount, just to get, a, get everybody an idea of, of how many students we're talking about? Yeah, so we use, so the total headcount uh, at any given time is between 42 and 43,000 students. Um, less than 10% of those would be graduate students. So okay. um, we're talking between 35 and 40,000 learners at any given time who are actively registered in a course um, and, and pursuing a course, whether it is as um, an open study student, which would be not in an AU program or in an AU undergraduate program. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And, and I remember, like, it wasn't even a year ago when AU experienced an enrollment increase and saw those numbers spike a little bit. It's, it's well known that Alberta and Ontario tend to make up the majority of AU student population. Obviously, we are also a university that can brag to the fact that we've got students in every province and territory across the country and international. Yep. Are you seeing any new trends that would change AU student demographic or have, has it been pretty static for, you know, years? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So, Jody, can you tell me what our top four enrollment provinces are in order? Um, I think if I was to guess, I would go Alberta number one, Ontario number two, then I would probably lean back to B.C., and then, oh my goodness, I... Everybody gets stuck on the fourth one, yeah. Maybe Quebec? No, I'm, I'm leaning maybe towards, like, more to the east, maybe. Okay, I don't yeah. know. I You're leaning, yeah, yeah, well, it's Saskatchewan. <laughs> oh, is Saskatchewan number four? Yeah, and most, many people would have maybe picked Saskatchewan last. Oh, um, my goodness. If Christine Williamson was on the call right now, she would be uh, jumping up and down because she's a sass. <laughs> she's a sass. Oh, yeah. Heart too. Yeah, I, I feed her. Um, I, I used uh, I used a metaphor with her a couple of months ago, and I said that you know students students who complete their credentials were grist in my mill, and she jumped on that, and that's why <laughs> there was this wheat, this wheat metaphor that I never realized she would have an affinity for. So, so yeah, I'll have to I'll have to start bringing up Hefeweizen and stuff when I talk to her. Um, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but are we getting younger? Um, I know I'm not getting younger, but okay. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe I should. Uh, um, well, let Is me our talk a little demographic getting younger. Yeah, let me um, let me go back to answer your first question. Um, so your first question was, what are some enrollment trends that might be changing? Um, and I can't go on, you know, go on the record and say I've got the stats for this, but I'll tell you what my gut is telling me is happening. So essentially. We do have more students enrolling with us, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and we do have plans to, you know, exponentially grow our student body as well. But the changes that we're getting now um, mostly are relating to the demographics um, of the post-secondary learners in the country. So we are tracking that to a certain extent for um, our open study students. But for students that are pursuing programs with us, I think that is fairly static, right? Yeah, the yeah. biggest trend, the biggest trends that I think we're going to be seeing are going to be are going to be related to the affordability of education. So we are very affordable in the marketplace. Um, if you look at tuition at other universities, you know there's the price, the sticker price that you see when you go to enroll or register. There are a lot of, I wouldn't say hidden fees, but other administrative student service related fees. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, uh, and we don't have the same thing here, right? So you're a student at uh, Bricks and Mortar University. Well, you're going to have to pay for your transit pass, pay for your recreation fee. And, and, you know, all these things, most of them aren't optional. So we, we don't have the same kind of thing built in. Um, so the price point is a little bit different. Um, but as we see tuition going up across the country, um, Ontario specifically and in Alberta as well, yeah. we really see think that we're going to get more students who are presenting maybe with financial aid or can't afford to go to a bricks and mortar institution where it might cost them more. So we see that. And, you know, I, I'm not, we're not ambulance chasers by any stretch, but with some of the, you know, pandemic fears that are coming down the pike, I do see a, a mini spike right now in our enrollments, and that may carry through, you know, for the next little bit, depending on what happens with 
you know, the health situation right now globally, right? So we are well positioned and well suited for someone who doesn't want to go to a public university. Yeah, there's no question that the tuition is a hot topic for us. Uh, I think the next couple of years are going to be very important to see, you know, how those trends are reflected in the enrollment. And uh, yeah, I think as a student's union, this is, um, you know, it's a big advocacy point for us, as you can imagine. Um, yep. so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm very curious to see what those trends are going to look like moving forward. And let's move on to course registrations. And I think you might've mentioned this earlier. And so this might be a little repetitive, but to give the students an idea on a monthly basis or even annually, how many course registrations, uh, does your team process? Right. Yeah. So, so last year would have been, uh, about 92,000 registrations. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge number. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's big, right? So uh, we have a very large student body, um, and it is uh, essentially, as you know, I talked about, it's over every province and territory in Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus, plus international registrations, right? So when I do my uh, convocation speech, um, I like to let the graduates know about how many different countries that students have come from who are graduating that year, and Every year it is between 80 and 90 different countries, right? So Yeah, I always, love, uh, I always love when you throw the map up and you have everybody's location on the map and it's literally just peppered with a yeah. students across the world, yeah. It, um, it really is, yeah. When it comes to course registrations, uh, what do students, students need to know to ensure that their course registration is submitted and processed smoothly? And whether it's about deadlines or timelines, like... Is there anything that is, is something that students would really benefit from just to make sure that those course registrations are smoothly uh, sort of run through? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of our students, um, you know, do register within a, a 10 days before our cutoff. So right. as you as you know, and, and many, most of our students will know that in order to start a course on the first of the month, you have to register by the 10th of the prior month. That's right, so yeah. there's like a 20-day, on average, uh, cutoff window there. So if you're doing it, um, and I've, I've, you know, I look at these uh, stats on a regular basis, and I mine the data on a regular basis. So 80% of our students are registering within, as I said, like the the 10 10 days before cutoff, with a huge chunk happening, you know, four or five days ahead of time. So <laughs> does it kind of feel um, like if it wasn't for the last minute, nothing would get done? Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's like, you know, I've co- we've cooked a lot of food, but the guests haven't arrived yet. What's happening here? And yeah, then yeah. It, invariably, yeah, I mean, everybody shows up. So, but, you know, that is the nature of our learner, nature of our student body is that the majority of them, um, education is not their number one uh, or their only life priority, right? So right, yeah. they are, they have family commitments, they have work commitments, um, they could have things going on with their health. Um, who knows, right? Um, so, you know, the average age of our learner is, you know, 27, 28 years old. Um, and that average age is skewed a bit because of the large number of our students who are in open studies. So uh, maybe it's a good time just to talk about what our student body looks like just from, you know, the type of uh, uh, credential or path they're pursuing. Sure. So the ma- majority of our students, let's say 65% of our students, Overall, uh, are um, open studies, so they are pursuing probably a credential at another university or taking a course for reasons that we may not be totally aware of. Okay. The other 20%, uh, the next 20% would be in an AU program, um, undergraduate program, so they're pursuing a credential with us. Then the remainder would be uh, graduate students, whether in a graduate program or unclassified graduate students. So our um, largest graduate program, I'll throw that back to you. Do you know what our largest graduate program is? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm going to aim towards, oh, this might be maybe too easy, but, man, outside of the MBA, I'm just thinking something along the lines of uh, the business programs. Right. So it's Master of Nursing. So, is it the nursing? See, I had that on my back of my mind as well. Yeah. So that's incredible. Our, yeah, our graduate program in business, our MBA is second, but our healthcare footprint in the wow. province um, is huge. So 
Um, we have a very large Master of Nursing program, Master of Health Studies program. Um, we have Master of Counseling program. So we have a really large footprint. And as you can imagine, teaching kind of these specialized type of courses, um, not just at the graduate level, at the undergraduate nursing as well, uh, it, it's um, complex. It's complicated, right? So. Well, and I guess that does speak to the demographics as well of how many nurses are potentially working and working on those graduate studies at the same time. That's exactly the way to look at it because that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you share with us, um, and again, two or three tips, or if you have them, around booking exams? And, you know, we talked a little bit about, and, and I'm going to hit on the uh, sort of the, uh, the digital exam conversion project that you're working on, but um, in general, are there any tips that you can throw over around specifically booking exams and maybe the difference between the online exams versus paper exams? Yeah, okay, yeah, it's a good question. So I understand that booking that writing an exam is uh, a high stress point uh, and especially if you haven't written an exam in a long time mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is the first university course that you've ever taken so the whole thing about writing an exam could be a bit of a mystery right so right, right. so so the main the main thing would be don't procrastinate when it comes to writing your exam and booking it so we do require um, generally a 20-day advance notice and that isn't because we want to approve it, it's because we have to make sure that we can get your request, uh, process it, and get your exam in the hands of your invigilator. So um, about, uh, gosh, three, four years ago now, we started what was a pilot project at the time, but now is full bore um, online exam invigilation through a third-party company called ProctorU. So yeah, that's right. We've we partnered with them, um, and many students, many, many students have used the service to date. We're very happy with the service. It allows students to write exams. I call it in your fuzzy slippers or your bathrobe at home. Yeah, so right. you can, you know, you can uh, literally complete a university degree with us without ever having to leave your home to do any of your coursework which is pretty fantastic, including your exams. And, you know, so that's, that's pretty neat. So the main, the main advice would be to, you know, have a plan um, and pace yourself in your course and don't wait to the last minute to do the exam booking because um, we do have, unfortunately, some um, late penalties and stuff in place to date uh, to what we hoped would be to encourage students to meet deadlines. Um, and I have to say it's not doing everything that I would hope it to do because we we have way too many students that are kind of getting caught up in the, the penalty structure at this point in time. So I'll go back to your original question. So what's the difference between um, online and paper-based exams? Because we are really using the same deadlines right now. Okay. We recognize that there are different timelines that should be involved for a digital exam versus a paper-based exam because we don't have to use Canada Post or a courier to send a digital exam, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we are working with our systems to be able to bring some differentiated timelines into play. Um, and that's taking longer than I would have hoped for a number of reasons, which I won't go into here, but essentially as the university looks to bring in a new um, what we call the ILE, the integrated learning environment, we're going to make sure we bake some of these improvements into the new system. So the big pieces will involve a new student information system coupled with a new stu uh, student relationship management system coupled with a new learning management system. You know, we currently use Moodle for that and Banner and another Microsoft Dynamics for those three, right? So. So it's imminent right now, so we're supposed to get an announcement actually by end of day tomorrow internally about what our new tech stack is going to be, and that's going to be a game changer for us in lots of ways. So specifically, you know, my hope for the exam piece here would be that we would have differentiated timelines for students who are, who are taking exams in different ways, but also that we would be able to push out a reminder to you, the student, to remind you to book your midterm or book your final when we can detect that you've actually completed all your assignments or your quizzes and you're ready to go or that the deadline based on your contract end date you know is approaching that kind of stuff right 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 um approximately how many of our exams are now uh online or digitized 
right. So Are we, we have about 30% or so. Oh, we're, yeah, we're well over 30%. Um, I'm just going to bring up that number here now. So we have about 40,000 exams that are written annually, and that could be a midterm or a final. So 36% of our exams are still paper-based. So then the difference, okay. the other side, so about 64, 65% um, of our exams now are digital. Getting there, right? Yeah. And so we did get... Uh, our goal is to get 95% of our exams digitized. We recognize that some exams um, would be very difficult to digitize right now, just related to the nature of the course. So if you have to draw a diagram, um, for example, in some economics courses, or maybe you're taking uh, chemistry and you have to do some, draw a picture of some bonds or some atoms or whatever, um, it's not as simple for some of those things. Yeah, true. So, yeah, so the goal is um, to get to 95%, and we're really focusing on some of our high enrollment courses first. So we have, I call them, I always call them my hit list, but we have some very high enrollment courses that, um, if we can get them digitized, would have real, uh, real impact for our student body. And I just found out uh, last week that it looks like we're going to get some good traction in our number five course, which is accounting 253. So that would be good. Nice. No, I think that's going to be huge for students. So you are also uh, the chair of the Student Academic Appeals Committee. And um, can you describe a little bit about the role of that committee? And I don't know if there's a nutshell version of that or not. Yeah, so as the registrar, I'm the chair of two subcommittees of General Faculties Council. So that's one of them. So essentially, uh, the Student Academic Appeals Committee is the appeal committee of last resort. So any student who would like to appeal um, a policy or a procedure um, or a finding of um, academic misconduct uh, can appeal to this committee. So um, uh, in a nutshell, the committee has a very broad latitude to reverse decisions. Um, we operate on, under the principles of natural justice, and the committee is composed of uh, myself as chair, um, a member from each faculty, uh, and then representatives from the student body. So AUSU would appoint a member, and as would AUGSA. Nice. Um, so um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, obviously, with that in mind, given AU's unique learning environment, what does academic misconduct look like? at AU versus a typical brick-and-mortar university. I mean, my time uh, before I joined AUSU was at McEwen, and so I'm familiar a little bit with the brick-and-mortar side of things, but what does that look like uh, at AU when it comes to academic misconduct? Yeah, it's very similar right now based on the availability of online learning resources that might be less than, I was going to say legal, but less than, less than ideal. So if you did a Google search for you know, accounting 253 at Basque University, probably the number three or four hit is going to be from a website or a company that actually wants to sell you what they perceive to be shortcuts to your academic learning. Yeah, yeah. The main type of academic misconduct at the university is someone who unfortunately is trying to take a shortcut and they're Googling the topic that they are trying to work on, finding online references through Google Scholar or something else, yeah. and then just liberally cutting and pasting without referencing. So that, that in essence, is the standard academic misconduct at Athabasca University, and probably very similar to that that's happening at other universities as well. So it's yeah, I think writing, I would agree a, with writing that. a paper. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, sure. it, it, it's just so easy to do. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, what, what could be, you know, in some cases a, a teachable moment you know, might be perceived as academic misconduct. But we are right now revamping our academic integrity policy, and we are going to bring in some restorative justice pieces. So, for example, that could mean, and, you know, Grant McEwen is actually the leader in some of this stuff, as you may know, that could mean that instead of being penalized, you would have an option to uh, take an online course related to academic integrity, maybe do a small paper about, you know, how that could have impacted your learning, you know, that type of thing. So that mm -hmm. that is coming. No, and I appreciate that because I think this is very important for students to be able to hear and it's kind of on a similar type of theme. But for those students unfamiliar with AU's grades system, which is yep. somewhat new, can you talk a little bit about grades and how this system is improving timelines for students? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, 
I was closely involved with this project. So um, flashback, you know, five years ago, uh, and we had a different product called Newton. And essentially, you know, picture um, you as a student submitting your final exam, it being marked, and then your final grade has to make its way to the Office of the Register in some way, so we can actually record that you passed the course, put it on the transcript, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, well, before we had grades in place, that grade, you know, your grade could have been handled by five or six different people and entered in three or four different systems before it got to us. Oh, wow. and, when, and when we received it, we were actually getting it on a paper form. Like, oh, great. So this, yeah, we were using cutting edge 70s technology to do <laughs> yeah. this, right? So Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right now, the grade system uh, essentially eliminates all that. So when your final grade is entered, it is being uh, piped directly into the student information system when it's finalized, um, which means that what could have been a three or four week delay now is happening mostly in real time. So mm-hmm. you're trying, you're yeah. trying. Yeah, your transcript will be updated the next day. Um, so, you know, what does this mean? Well, the majority of our students actually want to transfer their course, uh, their grade back to their home institution. So this just makes it easier for them to do that and lets them get on with the next thing they want to do, right? So we're, we're very happy with that. Love it, yeah. I'll just take maybe this time to highlight what I think one of the main institutional challenges is, specifically for an open university like us. So, um for every 100 undergraduate students that starts a course, whether they're in a program um, or in open studies, well, I'm grouping them all together at this point because it's a statistic, sure. um, 42.5% of those students don't get a passing grade at the end. You know, that number um, is high, and it's, it's, it's similar to other open universities, right? And some of that is because the students, we, we're an open university, so they may have underestimated the effort it takes. But it also may be that the student, you know, just wasn't ready to take a course at that time. Mm-hmm. So what our goals are is to be able to move the needle on that. So as students actually register with us, we can get in early and help students do the planning, do the assessment. And, you know, one of the biggest things about being successful in a course is believing that you can be successful in a course. So it's eliminating some of the self-doubt um, and helping to keep students on track which could be with a reminder system. It could be using email nudging. Um, it can also be using more just-in-time advising. You know, if a student misses a deadline or, you know, is over halfway through their course contract and has done little or nothing in the course, then that might be a good time to check in with the student and ask him what we can do to assist them, right? Yeah, and, you know, we hear from a lot of students here at the Students' Union, and I can't help but think that, that level of support services, even from an academic perspective, would be huge for them as they move through their academic career. Um, I think a, I think this whole piece of the conversation would resonate with a lot of students for sure. Can you explain what full-time and part-time status is at AU and how it pertains to student financial aid? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question. Um, It shouldn't be tough. So the challenge we have is that every other university, almost every other university in North America, has three semesters per year. One that starts in September um, for four months, one that starts in January for four months, Mm -hmm. and then a a loose one that may start in the summer, like a summer session, right? That usually starts in May. Yeah, yeah. So um, to be full-time at most of the universities, you have to have a 60% course load, which would be taking three courses um, over a four-month period. So now let's look at Athabasca University. We still have to um, deal with external agencies and and provincial funding agencies. So they want that same full-time footprint. So in order for an Athabasca University student to have that, they have to have the equivalent of that. So that's not the same as just taking three courses um, over a four-month period because all of our courses are uh, six months long, right? That's right. Um, except for financial aid courses. So uh, essentially, to be full-time, you have to be taking a 60% course load. That's equivalent to that. So depending on your situation, you know, if you're not starting all your courses at the same time, it could look a little bit messy, right? Yeah. So the, the real question is, 
what do you need to be considered a full-time for? If it's for, it's, it's for financial aid, that would be kind of one avenue to go down. But if it's for like in an external scholarship or something else, you know, it could look like something else. Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate you going through that because it seems like every time I do this, I need to get my calculator out yep. and, and do the math. Uh, let's talk about something that every student loves, awards and scholarships. Sure. Can you speak a little bit about the AU Awards program and the new software that your team is exploring to streamline the awards process? And uh, eventually we're going to end on uh, a program uh, called uh, I Care Awards that uh, I'm hoping that maybe we can chat about too. Sure, yeah. So um, the university has a modest um, scholarship and bursary budget, and most of that is related to the fact that as an open university um, with no students really on campus on a regular basis, we're not getting the same sort of donations. Um, many of our students don't feel the same type of affinity because you know, they don't remember sharing a brew at the, the university pub with their with their friends and, you know, um, living in residence, that sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. so we're up we have we have a different type of donor at the university. So a lot of our funding does come from either internal base budget awards or from the government. We do have a number of awards, also some some very generous individuals that could be um, related to the university in some way, or it could be graduates, or it could be faculty, or former faculty as well. So essentially, when we talk about scholarships and awards, we really break it down into two things. We have scholarships that are usually given based on merit. Merit would mean uh, GPA, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And then bursaries, which are given uh, based on demonstrated need. Um, we don't like to mix and match those because it gets messy. It's hard to, you know, determine when you have kind of these multivariate criteria who should get the award. So, yeah, we have um, an awards finder currently on our website. You could go through there. Um, you can submit an award. We have a portal right now. But our technology here is still pretty rudimentary. And in many cases, what looks like a slick front end for an application is still <laughs> being being emailed to somebody. They're printing it off, and then they're populating a spreadsheet, right? Gotcha. Um, five years ago, we were asking you to fax in your application. So we're, <laughs> we're not doing that anymore. So, yeah. Um, so... We are looking at other solutions. We had one that we thought would be really good. Um, and right now, we're not making any decisions on new technology until we see what the new student information system is going to bring. So Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, so very shortly, we'll be able to decide what's in the new ILE um, in these three pieces I talked about and what we have to create some parallel functionality for. And then we can pursue that more vigorously as well. We do have um, one full-time staff member, and that's all basically that Tim does is to work on uh, scholarships and bursaries, and he does a really good job. He's an ex-banker, um, which is kind of neat. Um, and we would run committees um, to be able to adjudicate these awards where there's things like, you know, we have to submit an S or those type of things. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, here at AUSU, we're very proud of our awards program, and I know that uh, we're constantly... Uh, promoting and communicating to students to to make sure that they get into your website and see what's on there and, and free money is always a good thing now there is um i believe it was called i care awards and uh is this sort of moving forward and is there potentially some money there that students can uh potentially access down the road uh specifically during AU's 50th anniversary. Yeah, thank you for the plug. I feel like I should be giving you a small manila envelope <laughs> under the table here right now. So um, as the chair of the Student uh, Awards Committee um, and as the registrar, I am fiscally responsible for the program and for the fund. And so a number of years ago, probably two or three years ago, we did a reconciliation internally at the university and found that we had money that had been donated to the university over the last 50 years, but we didn't have really good endowment paperwork for it. So it was being kept in trust and we were still awarding um, stuff out of it, but we didn't have the level of rigor from a paperwork audit perspective that we wanted to have. So finance did a stellar job at the university and we found about um, $750,000 that they said, okay, this is money that we can now use for student awards. And so the plan for that is what we're doing now. So we don't really want to spend the principal. 
what we want to do is spend the interest on that. So for this yeah, yeah. year, what we did was we, we let it build for a couple of years till we had a decent amount. And that's this $50,000 we're expending in our 50th anniversary year. And we went forward and, you know, we encourage students to apply for these awards um, as, you know, they're presented as well. And they are, they are on our website. I believe we just gave out the first batch, but we'll be giving out more okay. as we go on later in the year. Okay, that's awesome. Um, and as and as we go forward for future years, we may keep it as the eye care bursary for a period of time. Okay. But we also know that things will change for us, and we may bring forward different criteria for different needs as our students change or as demonstrated need change. And I guess I would reference back to our natural disaster bursary, which we really created after the Slave Lake fires. Right, um, right and, I remember. Yeah, and they've been really well received. And, you know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of natural disasters in Canada and in this province over the last number of years, including mm -hmm. fires and floods, right? So, yeah, that's right. Um, and not just in this province. So, you know, in BC and... Um, you know, we've given out flood um, awards to people in New Brunswick and other areas as well. And yeah, for, for our listeners out there, uh, AU is turning 50, so uh, there's going to be lots of really cool events and things happening throughout the year. So uh, we'll be continually uh, promoting uh, a lot of those opportunities as the year goes along. A quick question here, or maybe we'll, I guess we'll, maybe we'll see after I ask it, but uh, last year AU introduced an EDU email for AU students. Uh, how has the uptake been so far uh, for students kind of moving over to that EDU-specific uh, email? Yeah, thank you for asking this because it is um, not as well received as I would like it. So well, the situation we find ourselves in is that we have a lot of students who have accepted the EDU email but might not be monitoring it on a regular basis. Oh, I see. So when a student applies and registers, they're given the option of you know checking a box and getting an EDU uh, email address. Um, when they do that, they get access to some licensing from Microsoft products. As yeah, yeah, students. for sure. Um, and, you know, it's not at a reduced cost. It's uh, Many of them are free, right? Yeah, and that's what um, we which, promote as well. Yeah, so that students are really, I think, checking a box because they see the benefit. And then they're not necessarily circling back and monitoring that email. And we really had some, we saw some challenges related to students not obviously not reading communication we'd be sending to them as their to their primary email, which they had selected as their EDU email. So yeah. there's some thinking internally that we may make this a mandatory email address for our students, which many other universities would do. Okay. We're, we're hesitating a little bit because our students are necessarily the same as other students um, across the country um, because many people, you know, only want to have one email address and just use that. But Really, we want to make sure that students are getting what they need from us in a timely manner. And, and as we move forward to try to create reminders for students and service opportunities for students moving forward in the situations that you know, we've already discussed, Jody, we really have to have a way to communicate with them. And the email currently is the best way to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to stay in touch with that because if there's more communication required, you know, obviously we can uh, definitely partner up and assist uh, in any way we can. You know, we're kind of moving towards graduation here, and this is the last question I've got for you today, Richard. And uh, from your perspective, what information regarding graduation services uh, would be considered essential for students to know as they get closer to finishing their degree? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So, we have used DegreeWorks for five or six years now, and I encourage all students to use DegreeWorks if they're in a program of study with the university. It really helps you um, track your progress in your credential, also lets you see what courses you should be taking and what your other options might be. So it's really beneficial when you are, you know, ready to graduate, and you'll know that based on, you know, all your check uh, boxes are ticked in DegreeWorks, um, um, including your in-progress courses. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's an option there to apply to graduate. So when you check on that box, it will take you to an online form. And from there, you can apply to graduate. So the thing um, just to note is that, you know, don't procrastinate on it. Um, you know, we do graduate students every month. And by that, I mean, we will send your name forward once you've completed your credential for degree approval um, 12 times a year, essentially. Uh, and for this specific year, though, what I want you to know is that we have changed our convocation dates. So we are now having two, two convocations. 
uh, one in September in Athabasca and one in Toronto in early October. So check out our website on that to get more specific details. So we're specifically making some changes this year for two or three reasons. Um, the main reason is because of the forest fire season, which we have come up against over the last few years in Athabasca. So we're hoping to move out of the, the wildfire season. So September is a good time for that. Then for the 50th anniversary, we thought we would provide an opportunity for our students who are further east in the country to participate, maybe because they, they didn't want to travel to Athabasca um, for reasons based on economics, time, you know, whatever in the past. So it'll be good, a good learning opportunity for us to see how well this is received. But it is an exciting time, you know, for us as we go forward and try some new things in our 50th year. Yeah, we're certainly looking forward to it. I know that we'll be at both uh, events, and uh, it's kind of a cool opportunity. We don't get to sort of wave the flag in Ontario very often in person and face-to-face, so uh, I think it's a cool opportunity. It was a great idea by the university to give it a go this year. Yes, and I'll just go over the dates again. So in Athabasca, September 18th, and in Toronto, October 2nd. Richard, this has been a great conversation. We've just sort of burned through an hour almost, and uh, I feel like we could keep going, but I'm very respectful of your time, and uh, I really, really appreciate the time that you've taken. Uh, this has been fantastic information that you've shared with us today, and uh, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this information is extremely valuable just because every AU student who walks through the virtual doors of AU you know, can use this information and can benefit from it. And so for that, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to to hang out with us uh, on the podcast. Thanks, Richard. Well, yeah, you're more than welcome. And, you know, my door is always open for AUSU as well. Um, I have been a student in the past and, you know, I wasn't a great student. You know, I'll fess up that, <laughs> you know, I I may have spent too many hours um, not doing the coursework I should have been doing. Um, so I do identify with adult learners. Um and I have done adult learning as well. And it is challenging to balance things off. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I really, you know, my focus is on student success, right? So I, I, and I appreciate the time that you've given me to kind of talk about it a little bit. So thank you so much. Well, thanks again, Richard. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, I, again, uh, I'm sure that if there are any questions or what have you that come into our office, we'll certainly be able to share them and uh, build on this awareness around a lot of the topics that we covered today that really, like we said, covered admissions right through to graduation. So we appreciate the time uh, hanging out with us today. Have a good one, Richard. You too. Bye now. All right. Take care.